One of the most perplexing traits of Christians to onlookers has been our generosity. It's strange to the world that we would willingly give away all of those things that others are going to war over, isn't it? It's perplexing to look in on a life and to realize that that person is going to work every day and they're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and they're bringing home a modest salary and then for them to give away such a significant portion of that, such a significant portion of something that seems so modest, seems utterly unthinkable. But this isn't strange in the Christian outlook. In fact, this is normal in the life of the Christian to live out with this type of generosity. This time of year, I always think about Lottie Moon. A lot of people have seen her name on a Christmas envelope, but they don't actually know who Lottie Moon was. Lottie Moon was raised in the Civil War era uh, in the Deep South, and she was raised to an affluent family. In fact, Lottie was one of the very first Southern women in all of uh, the United States to receive a college education, and she went on to become a teacher. But her sister was a missionary in China and Lottie became infatuated with the need and the concern and she would read the letters written to her by her sister. And so she left a marriage proposal, a career, affluence and comfort to displace her life in 1873 and to move over to China. While she was there, she ministered to the unreached Chinese people for 39 years People that knew poverty that she had never seen, that knew hunger that she had never experienced, that knew hardship that she had never faced. When she had been there for 39 years, at the age of 72, the mission board, the uh, the foreign mission board realized that she had been taking her modest missionary salary and taking the food rations that they were providing to her and that she had been giving all of those away. So that when they found Lottie, She was in a near debilitated state on the verge of starvation. The doctor decided that they had to immediately emergency uh, evacuate her from China to be able to get her back to the States and they load her onto a ship. But Lottie never made it back to the United States. Instead, she went home. She went home. In a harbor in Japan, she went to be with the Lord dying as a result of her own starvation from giving her food to the people that she was trying to reach. And as remarkable as Lottie's story is, in the scope of Christian history, it is not the exception, it is the rule. It is not what is extraordinary, it is what is expected. To have seen a savior as great as ours, to have known a God as benevolent and as kind as ours, is to live and to go in a way that is the same sacrifice, the same generosity, the same spirit. But what I see today in the Christian life is that we are as perplexed by Christian generosity as the world has been. We are as confused as to why we would give away the small things that we, would, we, that we could enjoy rather than enjoying them and enjoying our salaries and enjoying our resources to their fullest extent. And this morning, what we're going to see as we finish up the book of Philippians together is we're going to see Paul giving to us a theology of why it is that Christians give, why it is that Christians like Lottie Moon have been willing to give away their very sustenance that to be able to help someone else share in their troubles and advance the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter four? 
Philippians chapter four. When you get to Philippians chapter four, if you would just stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll start in chapter 14 and we'll go to the end of the book. Verse 14 of chapter four and go through the end of the book. God's word says, yes, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, accepting and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. In Paul's ministry, the Philippians were a delightful exception among his churches. That that is, they were strange in the best senses of the word. See, on one hand, the church at Philippi was perhaps Paul's most impoverished, his poorest congregation. And yet, on the other hand, though being his poorest congregation, they were at the very same time his most generous congregation. He wrote about them, in fact, as an example to the church at Corinth, trying to teach those those stubborn Corinthians what Christian generosity was supposed to look like. And he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 8-2 about the Philippians. He says, for in a severe time of affliction, their abundance of joy, don't miss that word, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is what Paul says about the Philippians, what he's observed in them. That it seems as though their joy is so strong Their joy is so durable. Their joy is so overwhelming that it completely overwhelms their poverty so that they are still able to be generous. That they are so filled with joy that even in in poverty, even in affliction, even in hardship, they are willing, able, and ready to be generous because their joy is just that overflowing, that it's looking for a place to spill out into their lives. And so he's here and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi and he's thanking them and he's, he's praising them and he's appreciating them. And he's saying, look, you have been so generous in the midst of your poverty and, and here's why. Here's what you know. Here's the reason that you give. Here's the reason that we all give. Here, this is the reason, the reasons that we as Christians live as we do. And so I want us to see at least three different reasons why Christians give, why Christians are generous. The first reason that I want us to see is that Christians give because we give to share troubles. We give to share troubles. Our our passage started that way in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now, for a lot of us, when we hear about sharing troubles, that's not a justification to give. That's a deterrent to giving. Because what what most of us are looking for is not a messy, inconvenient, uncomfortable faith. What most of us are looking for is a low maintenance, low drama, low requirement faith that allows us to get into heaven, but doesn't require anything else of us otherwise. 
What, what most of us want to be able to do is we want to be able to come to church on Sunday and then just go home, eat dinner, watch TV, and go to bed without having to be filled with the concerns of everyone else. We don't want somebody else's drama in our lives. Like how many times, honestly, have you said that? I, I have said that. I've said it frequently, right? And the trouble is, is that I'm not sure that it's Christian. I'm not sure that that is the essence of a gospel-centered life. Instead, instead, what we have to recognize, we have to recognize that every day in our community, in White Plains, Alabama, there are children that are going to school that are unbathed and hungry. There are teenagers that don't believe they have a single significant role model in their life that can invest in them and love them. Every night in Mountain View and every night in Grandview and every night on Chocolaca Road and every night in Golden Springs, there are moms that are going to bed and they're lonely. They're lonely. There are dads going to work every day trying to dig themselves out of some hole that they can't see the top of and they are utterly hopeless and in despair. And for us, it seems like a lot to ask us to commit the emotional capacity to take those needs on as though they are our own to take and to share in those troubles, to share in those afflictions, to share in those hardships. It's much easier to go home. And though we would not say we are unsympathetic, we would go home and just say, I just don't have the bandwidth for that. I just don't have the energy to give to that. I don't need to share in troubles. I've got my own troubles. And so what we see here for the Philippians is that they are doing the opposite of that. They have said, Paul, we see your chains and those are gonna be our chains. Paul, we see your prison and that's gonna be our prison. We see your need and it's going to be our need. They saw Paul's needs and they took those needs on as though they were their very own and they shared in his troubles and shared in his hardship. So Paul says in verse 15, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You have done something that even the affluent congregations haven't done. You have done something that even those that had greater ability to do it haven't done. You have shown me love and a willingness to, to come and to bear this with me. What's, what's interesting, verse 14, the word share, and verse 15, the word partnership, they share the same, uh, the same root word. The root is the word koinonia. It's the word we get our word fellowship from. You ever wonder why we use the word fellowship? Like sometimes in church, we just use words that are weird, right? That nobody else uses except in church. The word fellowship, it just sounds holier than we're hanging out, right? And we get that word from the Bible. We get the idea of fellowship from the Bible. But in Baptist speak, like in Baptist ease, like the word fellowship means fried chicken, casseroles, getting home late from church, right? Are y'all with me? But not in the New Testament. The New Testament definition of, of fellowship goes way past KFC and green bean casserole. The idea of fellowship is to be connected to each other, to be bound to each other, to be in such a close relationship with each other that we are carrying the same weights at the same time. And so when Paul says, you share in my troubles, when he says that you are, we are in partnership with one another, what he is saying is you are connected to my chains. You are connected to my poverty. You are connected to my hunger. You know my hunger as your very own. They are fellowshipping with him in his suffering by giving to him what little they had. See, true fellowship is not fried chicken and true fellowship is not casseroles. True fellowship is a willingness to overcome someone else's troubles at your own expense. That's Christian fellowship. Is that not what Christ has done for us? Is that not what Christ has done for us? We were out of fellowship 
from Christ. We were impoverished in our sin. We were on our way to death, poor and destitute, starving for the things of righteousness, hungering for the things that matter, looking for purpose and meaning in Christ. Christ, at his very own expense, paid our price, endured our penalty, took it upon himself and says, they are now my heirs. They are now my brothers and sisters. Now we are reconciled over what used to be broken. We are bound together, though we used to be separated, and I will do it at the expense of my cross. You see, Christian generosity finds its anchor point. It finds its roots. Not, not, not in your own kind spirit, not in your own benevolence, not even in the need that arises in the church. No, Christian generosity finds its roots in the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgiving is the forfeiture of your own rights, isn't it? It's giving to someone else what you have earned. It's giving to someone else what you worked for, what you labored for, what you got up early for, what you stayed late for, what you got tired for. It's t- giving to someone else what is rightfully yours, what, what belongs to you, and it's giving it to them for their good, to share in their trouble, to share in their raising of these beautiful babies that we have back here, to share in the advancement of the gospel. In other words, it is to do as Christ has done for us who bore our sins and credited us with a righteousness that only he had earned, that gave us an inheritance that only he deserved. Many of you this week, you're gonna eat too much. Like, can we just call that? You have lemon meringue pie and key lime pie and turkey and ham, and it's just gonna go down Thursday, isn't it? Like you already know, like you start sweating just thinking about it, right? And a lot of you, you have, like me, brothers and sisters that you're close to, that you love. And my, my sisters were making fun of me in a group text among us last night. Like that's, that's just how it happens, right? And so I just want you to imagine that on Thursday, after you've all eaten too much, you and your brother, you decide, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go on a hike down the Pinhody Trail and we're gonna burn some of these calories off. Like, like I've, that, that second slice of key lime pie, it's gotta go somewhere, right? And so you do, you just grab a couple of bottles of water and you guys, you head out to the national forest and you go to a spot that you've been to a hundred times before. You know it like the back of your hand and man, you're walking and you guys are cutting up and you're, you're sometimes the conversation turns serious, but most of the time, like it's, it's not serious. It's borderline inappropriate and you're, you're walking down the trail. And then at some point you kind of go a divergent path and you wait on your brother and you wait on your brother and you wait on your brother, but... He never comes back. And so your assumption is, your assumption is that he's messing with you, right? He's messing with you. He's he's already went back to the truck and left you high and dry in the woods. And this is just typical. And even if it's not, like, you know, your brother knows where where the woods and you know that he's a pretty good woodsman and you're not concerned with it. And so you just head back to the truck and you get there and you're irritated. Like you're, you're frustrated that he's not there already. And you're like, God, every time, man, every time. You wait and an hour passes by and two hours pass by and three hours pass by. And there you are. And he's, and this point, you're really upset. You're really angry because this joker has cost you your whole Thanksgiving afternoon and you still got to drive to your wife's parents, right? Like you still got to get there somehow. But you wait at the truck and you wait at the truck and, and dusk comes. And by, by the time you realize that you can't wait any longer, it's 10 o'clock and he hasn't come. 
You drive out to the first place that you can find cell phone signal and you call your family and you call his wife and you let them know that, that something's not right. Like he just didn't come back this time. And I know he does this thing, but I'm telling you this time something's not right. And you go through the woods and you search for him and you look for him and all of your family's out there in the place where you know him to be and you, you're crying out for him and looking and it's cold and, you're, and it's dark and you're thinking of all these worst case scenarios. Before you know it, it's been 30 hours and you haven't even slept or eaten. The authorities have been called in and they're looking and there's just nothing left for you to do. And you do the only thing that, that you can think to do. You, you go home and you go and you, you think, I gotta eat something. But as you try to eat, you think, how can I eat when my brother has not eaten? You try to rest and you think, how can I rest when my brother is out there cold? How can I take it easy when, when I know he is in such trouble, such hardship? You see, brothers and sisters, you don't take on his drama because it adds drama to your life. You take on his mess because you love him. You love him. Love compels us to share troubles that aren't our own. And right now we have brothers and sisters in this church. We have brothers and sisters in this community. We have brothers and sisters around the world today that have no food to eat, that have no warm place to sleep, that don't yet know the gospel. How is it that we can rest so comfortably? How is it that we can rest so easily? No, we we, like the church at Philippi, are to share in their troubles. We are to give generously and radically and to go generously and radically at our own expense that we might fellowship with them and deliver them. He says to them, you are not like any other church, none of the other churches in, in Macedonia, not even like the rich Thessalonians. You are unlike them all in that you have been willing to share my troubles and give to me. Oh, Iron City, that's the kind of church I want us to be. I want us to be that church. I want us to be the church that the missionaries can bank on. I want us to be the church that the teenagers of our community can bank on. I want us to be the church that the lonely mom and the desperate dad and the, and the distraught teenager can bank on, that we are going to share in their mess. We are going to be the ones that, that can be said of us if nobody else shows up to the fight, if nobody else steps up to the plate, Iron City will. Iron City will. Let's be that church. The second reason that we see for Christian generosity here is that we give to please God. We give to please God. Paul viewed what he received from them as a twofold situation. He, he says, it's really a remarkable sentence what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So, so there's this two tier way that Paul comes to view the generosity of the, Philipp, of, of the Philippians. On one hand, he sees it as God providing for him through them. So this isn't just the Philippians giving him something. Paul doesn't see it that way. He sees it much deeper than that, much better than that. He says, God is providing for me. My God has, is supplying my ever need according to the riches of his own glory. My God is giving these things to me. He's just giving them to me through your hand. He's giving them to, through, to me through your kindness and through your generosity, which is a mind boggling thought, isn't it? that God can work through you to reach people whose names you don't even know. 
God can work through you to meet needs that you don't yet even know about. God can work through, in fact, through Iron City, brothers and sisters, he does do that. We do pay power bills and do things and share the gospel with people that you know nothing about and never hear about. And we do it because of your faithfulness. And so God works through you to meet the needs of the kingdom. But there's a second layer to that. He says, not only do I see this as, you, as God giving through you to provide for me, I see this as God working in you to build up your own reward. That you are accruing a compounding reward in the kingdom of God when you give to me resources that are difficult for you to give. And so Paul doesn't want them to think that he loved them for their money, but he wants them to realize the significance and how appreciative he is and how they will be rewarded. There, he uses here, the language of commerce and banking. He talks about giving and receiving. And what they all would have understood is they all would have understood this was in the context, this is what the context of a friendship would have looked like. That a friendship is about giving and receiving. It's this constant cycle of generosity that, that friendship is a place where both you demonstrate generosity and you receive generosity. And the way they understood it is you would receive a gift from your friend and then, and then you would give a reciprocal gift that was even more generous than the gift that they gave to you. So in other words, you cook them a burger, they grill you a steak, right? And, and, you, and you, you build this, this, this cycle of friendship and love and expression of generosity into the relationship so that you're constantly seeing it as an opportunity to pour yourself out and at the same time to be loved, cared for and given to in humility by your friend. And what Paul understands is there is no way for him to be able to give back to the Philippians as generously and as sacrificially and as beautifully as they have given to him. He can't do it. And so what he says is he says, I want you to understand, I can't give back to you. I can't give you a reciprocal gift for what you have given to me, but there is something far greater coming to you. There is one who is far generous than I am. There is one who is far wealthier than I am. There is one that is far kinder than I am. And he, he is storing up for you treasures that are gonna have compounding interest for that are gonna last you forever. You see, in the Christian relationship, within the church, we don't give to get back, right? Like, like when we give to the life of the church, we're not paying our membership dues, right? So that we can have the access to the tennis courts and the weightlifting area. No, 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 we're doing something far greater. We're not giving so that we can have, we're giving because we already have. We're giving because we already have. We have Christ. We have a secure future. We have a, a, a durable joy. We have an indestructible treasure that will only continue to compound interest over the generations. So we give generously and graciously now, not so that we can get, but because we already have something far greater than we could ever have otherwise. See, God's economy is the opposite of the world's economy. God's economy is the opposite of the world's economy. In the world's economy, it is the receiver, the receiver that is blessed. It is the receiver that is the one that, whose position you wanna be in. All of us are waiting for that Mr. Deeds moment when we realize that there's a guy that we never met, never cared for, never loved, and we're his heir to billions, right? Like we all wanna have that story, except in the Christian life, in the Christian worldview, in God's economy, it's the opposite. It's not the, the receiver that is blessed. It is the giver 
the giver that is blessed. It is the giver that is the one who receives a reward that is far greater. It is the giver that has the opportunity to worship God in an extraordinary way. See, God takes the gifts that you forget about, the gifts that you don't even remember, and he uses them in your life to accrue for you a treasure that is unmistakable, unsearchable, and indestructible. That, that, you, that you come and you give to your church just as a faithful Christian and those funds go out and all of a sudden, all of a sudden we have right now, did you know we have uh, John is, is, is discipling five football coaches, five coaches at our high school, some of whom don't know the Lord. And he's going and he's meeting with them every week and they're studying together the gospel of Mark. And you're a part of that and you didn't even know it. You're a part of that and you didn't even know it. That, that we're going to Swaziland and we're training up pastors and they're renouncing the, 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 the prosperity gospel. And they're beginning to teach and, and train their churches up in the true hope of the true gospel. And the gospel is advancing and you're a part of that. And your investment in that, in a word that you're not even sure about, is accruing for you a compounding reward in heaven that you will never find the bottom of for billions and billions and billions of years. We have 60 or 70 kids on our campus right now. 60 or 70 kids that are representative of their families, representative of, of souls that are, are hungering and needing and, and longing for the gospel. And we have people and resources that are expended right now so that they can hear the gospel and love the gospel and find Christ and be ministered to and be in a safe and a clean environment. And you're a part of that. You're a part of that, that you give like 10% of your income. You, you, you give money that would just be a half drink Dr. Pepper bouncing around your floorboard. And God is using those offerings that you long forgot about to accrue for you a reward that you can never find the bottom of, to share in the troubles of others, to be a blessing to people that you've never met and to minister to people that you don't yet even know. Now let's add another layer to it. Let's add another layer to it. He says in 18, at the end of verse 18, he says, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the layer of this that has really been convicting me over the last week. That's really been challenging me to step up my generosity to a new place. Because you see, they've given a gift, they've given a gift to Paul, but Paul is trying to change the way they see the gift that they've been, give, that they've been giving. That in fact, they really haven't given a gift to Paul Instead, they've made an offering to God. This, this isn't a gift basket with some, some cheese and some fruitcake that they're offering to a, a poor, lonely missionary that might be true and might not be true. No, their faithfulness, their generosity is not an offering to Paul. Their generosity is an offering to the Lord. He uses this language that's from the Old Testament of a fragrant offering. That they would take the animal and they would slaughter and they would place it upon the altar and they would light it on fire. And as it, as it burned there, the, the meat would start to have that fragrant aroma that all of us enjoy at a barbecue, right? And it would begin to waft up toward heaven. And when God would accept it, it would say that, that it was a, a pleasing aroma, a pleasing sacrifice. And what the, what the Old Testament makes clear is that God didn't just appreciate when someone burnt an animal. No, what he appreciated was when there was alignment between the head, the heart, and the hands, that the head knew what the Lord would have them do. And the heart loved to bring obedience and pleasure to God. So the hands in faith, the hands in obedience followed out and spilled out with what the mind knew and what the heart loved. The hands offered in faithfulness in the sacrifice. 
And it's this alignment that Paul has in mind when he talks about the Philippians, that they, they know that they are to support. They know what they are to do. They know what faithfulness looks like. Their heart loves to do it. Their heart loves to minister to others. Their hearts love to please God. And so now their hands are following through with a generosity that is disproportional to their wealth so that they are able to have greater giving power than what they have as spending power. And so they come and they offer it. And he says, your, your offerings, your gifts, this food in my stomach, these, these blankets, these clothes that I'm putting on me, they are a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. You know how this helps us? The number one question I, I think of when it comes to my giving is how do I know where it's going? How do I know where it's going? The, the homeless person comes and they ask me for something and I'm like, man, you're just gonna go and sp spend it on liquor. Like, what good is that? Or you come and, and you have all of these different ministries and they're all asking, and look, you have to use wisdom. I am, I am pro-wisdom, okay? You have to be prudent. You only have so much and you need to be prudent and wise in, in giving it. But you go and I'm thinking, well, well, how do I know that you're not just gonna embezzle it? How do, how do I know that it's ever actually gonna go and advance the gospel? And you're as prudent as you can be, as wise as you can be. But at the end of the day, do you know what you have to say? I'm not giving it to them. I'm not giving it to them. I'm not giving it to the homeless guy. I'm not first and foremost, at least. I'm not giving it first and foremost to the ministry. I'm not, I'm not giving it first and foremost to the missionary. First and foremost, I'm giving it as an offering to the Lord. I'm offering it to him that he will take it where it needs to be, that he will do what, it, what he needs to do. I'm offering it to the Lord that my life might look like the cross, that my life might mimic and imitate Jesus Christ and him crucified, that I who have received an inheritance that I did not owe will give to someone else what they did not earn. I will give to them generously and radically. And so for me, for me, what I want to do is give to God, not to others. Give to God, not to others. I want to add this layer so that every gift that I give to every homeless person, every gift that I give to an adoptive story, every gift I give to my church, every gift I give that I can offer it to them and say, first and foremost, I entrust it to you, O Lord. I entrust it to you, O Lord. And look, 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 regardless of what it happens to after that, regardless of what happens to it after that, the Lord will honor you. The Lord will bless you. The Lord will compound your reward. The Lord will receive it and the Lord will take pleasure in you. Church, is that not powerful? Is that not powerful? The final reason that we give as Christians is we give to express faith. We give to express faith. Verse 19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, there's an important shift that takes place in our, in our text. So verse 17, he's talking about these gifts that you're giving, these offerings that you're making. And really those are talking about something spiritual, aren't they? They're, they're, the reward that he's talking about, the reward that he hopes that increases in their account, it's a future reward, right? It's in the, the day of Christ. It's when, it's when Christ has returned and his kingdom is fully established and power and glory, the reward that you're gonna enjoy in eternity. But you might be like the Philippians could be. And you're like, man, I'm living in third world country poverty now. I'm hungry now. I'm poor now. I don't have much now. So how is it, as good as it is to me that one day there's going to be an abundance, why can I give today? I don't know that I'm gonna be able to eat tomorrow. I don't know that I'm gonna be able to provide for my children tomorrow. 
So verse 19, he shifts from the eternal to the temporal, from, from the spiritual to the material. And he says, no, no, no. God will supply your every need. God may not supply to you an upper middle class standard of living. God may not supply for you the house that you desire. God may not supply for you the car that you want, but God will supply for you your every need to live unto his glory, to live and live out his will as he would have for you to live, that God, according to his riches in glory, will give to you all that you could ever hope for. And you see, giving expresses confidence that God will provide. I can give today if I am certain and confident that God is going to provide for me tomorrow. I can give to you what little I have today if I know that the Lord is going to supply my every need today. And so as that is true, giving is a declaration that your security is not found in your currency. You see, your God is whatever you trust most. Your God is whatever you trust most. It's wherever you run when times get hard. It's wherever you run when you need reassurance. It's wherever you go when you need a refuge. It's wherever you go when you need encouragement. Oh, and I think it may be one of the primary indictments on the church that we would be more comforted by a $100,000 income than we are by the knowledge of the care of the Almighty. That we can run to our 401ks and we can run to our savings accounts and we can run to our weekly paychecks and we can run to our ambitious promotions and we see all of those things and we think, okay, I'm good. I'm gonna be fine. My family is secure. But no, it is the heart in love and enthralled with God that says, I don't need any of those things. And if they collapse around me, what I know is that God, according to his riches and glory, will supply my every need. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust the Lord? Not when it's easy, not when it's comfortable. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you have confidence in him? Because you see, if you do, Jesus is the proof that God is trustworthy, isn't he? Jesus is the proof that God is trustworthy. Paul talks about his riches of the, uh, the riches of the glory that is God. And he says, you, he has the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the owner of heaven and earth and all that you've seen and all that you've not seen. His wealth is unsearchable. And over all the course of eternity, you'll never find the end of it. He could have made you wealthy. He could have made you wealthy and it wouldn't have cost God anything. He could have made you a billionaire and it wouldn't have cost him anything. But instead, he made you a son. He made you a daughter. He made you an heir. And it cost him his very own son that you might not just have have what you want today, but that you might enjoy the fullness of his glory in Christ Jesus forever. To God, our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.